the stuff that Mazakan has achieved, I know a lot of wineries in Napa Valley would love to have achieved the success of being poured by the glass for 10 straight years, a place like the French Laundry and Chez Panisse and blah, blah, blah. You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, joined by Billy Galanco. How are you doing, Billy? Quite dandy today. It's a <laughs> sunny day here now in Los Angeles, finally. Nice. It is raining, has been raining for many days, but we're not allowed to talk about the weather anymore. So let's transition quickly into your, uh, you've taken another step in your W set and your wine education journey, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. I was was saying the freezing because of the the weather maybe. Um, No, it, it, well, I was going to say first, we can't start a podcast without talking about the weather. So we had to dive (laughs) in. Um, Yeah. No, the wine, wine journey is, um, continuing um hopefully the diploma's getting closer to an end um yeah i had my sparkling and my fortified exams took them both on the same day last wednesday um as of this recording and um they they went well um yeah i had the prep was pretty fun although i think i'm over sugary wines for a long time um mm-hmm. luckily the fortifieds will keep so they're here but um yeah yeah no i got the, of the six blind tasting wines i got five of six i got all the sparkling and had a small mix up with one of the fortifieds. There was a one that was purposely put in there. I know to trick me. Um, so, so that was, that was good. And the rest of the exam went well. And then on um, the Friday of last week, as of recording, I got um, my D3 results back and I passed that as well, which is more than 50% of the whole diploma program. So mm-hmm. um, that was the biggest step. These next two, I feel pretty good. So hopefully I'll get those results. They said by the end of March, according to this email I just read. So okay. I'll be done. After so what's your timeline for completing everything now as an update? Uh, March. Yeah, if once I get those results, I'll be done in theory. Completely. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then, so moving on, what's the next stage in order to move on to candidacy for master of wine? Yeah. So to apply for that at the end of uh, the applications open May 8th, I believe for master of wine. So then there's mm-hmm. a two-step application process. Um, they're kind of like tests in a way um, they have questions so you you go through the first part um i also need a recommendation from an mw luckily we have one on staff and another one on our advisory board mm-hmm. um and they're due and then once you submit that you have another one that's due at the end of june um mm-hmm. so it's like a two-parter and then they'll get back to you by september like their speedy way they do um nice. so i could hear in september if i'm accepted but we'll we'll cross that when i get there hopefully i get the results I'm anticipating for these last two exams and then we'll be off to the races. Yeah. yeah we, I mean, you've been, uh, aside from your studies, you've been working on a lot and a lot will change between now and then, uh, with the uh, e-commerce platform, you're kind of spearheading, um, as part of our, uh, you know, kind of coming out of our wine team and expanding our uh, ability to both sell collections and provide unique, uh, asset opportunities in the marketplace. You want to talk to people a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. This has always been on Vince roadmap to eventually offer some wines direct to consumer. Um, we're in really early kind of exploratory days of doing this. Um, so what we're, we're going to start out with is basically 
having a website right now, theventmarketplace.com, where you can go and sign up. Um, you're entered into an email list. Um, you can put wines that you're interested in. Um, and it's basically, you'll send an email and then we will respond. We'll talk to you about what you might be interested um, in wines that are available out of the Vint collection. So we'll talk about, you know, where you're located, what you're interested in, because right now with our, our permits and then the strict laws in the U.S. Um, about stripping wine to different states, you may be eligible for certain things and not others, spirits or wine could be variable. Um, and all these wines are also listed on wine surgery. Uh, the main goal of this, and I've had a, a bunch of conversations now with uh, different investors on our platform, is we are aiming to, again, expand and optimize our exit routes for all wines and spirits. So the mm -hmm. macro goal is to make as much money as possible for our investors. Um, the D to C route does this by eliminating, you know, certain middlemen. Like some of the exits we've had have been either, you know, sometimes assisted by brokers, sometimes to merchants who will then again, pass it on to a client. Um, so the closer we can get, the more money we can make for investors um, and the more margin overall. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I guess, um, especially with spirits too, uh, I guess pretty common exit channel maybe is the auction circuit as well, or is that mainly acquisition for us? That's mainly acquisition. Um, okay. There's a lot of value to be had there. And as we've mentioned before, the provenance for spirits is, is much easier to confirm just due to the complexity of some of the packaging. Um, and also the stability of the liquid inside the bottle itself is better for spirits. So uh, that is not quite as important to be coming from, a bonded warehouse or be in professional storage at all times. Um, obviously the condition of the packaging needs to be pristine, but we're more open to source there. Exiting um, is more, that would be more through private channels, direct to consumer. Um, there's just, again, more margin to be had there. We can, we can work with brokers or start building our own collections. Um, so I wouldn't say the auction market is going to be a never, but it's not a, it won't be a common exit point for us. Cool. Yeah. So if anybody wants to check it out, ventmarketplace.com, not CO. We could have gone with the CO, but we went with the com for normal, normalcy. Um, and basically, if you just put in your email, we'll reach out to you and get in touch about anything you might be interested in that's it's on the Vint list. And we'll be able to share the full Vint list of wines that are available as well. Um, also, this is just the start. So if you want to just reach out and talk to us about how you like buying wine online, if you don't like buying wine online, what you you know, different parts that you enjoy about the whole process. We would love to hear from you because we're trying to still craft the end experience um, that'll evolve over time. So we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, for sure. And, and always interested in talking to folks about the kinds of wines that they would be interested in buying just overall. Um, it's always good to have um, info about what sorts of wines we can potentially bring to this marketplace as it grows to not just, you know, only in buying what we have, but but just looking to expand, I think, that side of our business and, and understanding how we can add more value to our investors for sure. Um, cool. Yeah, a lot of good stuff on the horizon. We've talked about in previous episodes, other product changes um, and updates. So I think a lot to look forward to for this year. But um, sticking with this episode, we do have a, a interview coming up. Um, so we'll go ahead and introduce our guest for today, Dan Petrosky. Dan is the founder and winemaker at Masakon winery in Napa Valley. Um, basically, one of the top uh, white wine producers in Napa. It's been served at top restaurants like the French Laundry uh, since its inception. And that was has, I think, been a really big boon for them in terms of increasing exposure 
Um, and the whole style and idea behind Masakan is to introduce uh, a lighter Mediterranean style of white wine to the region and, and focus specifically on that. Um, I think it stands out because of those factors, especially in, um, you know, California and the Sonoma Napa area. Um, that style of wine uh, has made them extremely popular. And as they continue to expand and grow, I think their operations, um, Dan gives us some really good insight into what that process has been like and where they're going in the future. So it was a good conversation. And Billy even purchased some of the digital assets that Dan had put out. Billy, do you want to talk about uh, some of what that project was? Well, I'll just say first, I loved the conversation. I could chat with Dan for hours. He's the man after my own heart. Um, I mean, first, the aesthetics on the Masakan website are beautiful. He, he worked yeah. with a design agency. He had a special Masakan, Masakan Blue. Um, <clears throat> he works with obscure varietals. He's into blockchain and just technology, anything that helps make wine more accessible. So we'll, we'll mention that like the wines are sold at the French Laundry, but they're also an affordable price point. Like it's not unattainable. Yeah. So everything that he's trying to do with wine, making it, you know, interesting, attainable and, and technology driven kind of in some senses. Um, it's so cool. So yeah, so he has um, NFTs that are available. Uh, there were a couple. He's also featured on some TV, um, free plug, I guess, for some TV. Um, but they, they had a small thing where this, they partnered with Cuvée Collective to offer basically a couple bottles and a tasting um, through their platform. So I got that um, adding to my obscure NFT, wine NFT collections. Um, but that'd be pretty cool. So I'm I'm excited. And yeah, this is one of the most fun um I guess fun. I guess for me, it was like hard for me just to stop asking questions podcast yeah. in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of the podcast and uh, enjoy our interview with Dan. All right. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to be here, Billy. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Brady. Yeah, so we've given a little intro on who you are and what you're doing now, but it would be really exciting to give our listeners a little behind-the-curtain background into how you made your way into wine. Because I think while people do know you as a good winemaker, renowned winemaker, and launching your own brand, you don't really realize. You started out writing, I believe, in your past life, like for sports and other things. Yeah, so I grew up I grew up in New York City in Brooklyn and just a kind of a working class family and I didn't really travel much as a kid. So I was always using magazines as a, as a means to escape, going down to the magazine store, picking up the local, the monthlies and the weeklies and reading them and escaping. I wasn't a book reader, I was a magazine reader. So that ended up eventually getting me into the magazine publishing world as internships in college. I worked for New York Times Company, I worked for Brandt Publications, which was the magazine and Art in America magazine, Antiques, an interview magazine, which Andy Warhol started. And then eventually a job at Sports Illustrated. I built their websites in 1996, went down, covered the Olympics in 96 in Atlanta for them. A couple of years into that job at Sports Illustrated, I decided to pitch a couple of business ideas and magazine concepts to Time Inc., the parent company of Sports Illustrated. And they were like, what is this? kid in the editorial department of Sports Illustrated pitching magazine ideas. 
and building business plans. What's going on here? So they, they grass at the 34th floor of the Time Life Building sent me over to Time Magazine and charted me a path through consumer marketing, finance and sales. And, and along with that came management roles. And along with that came corporate cards and for the late nineties, early two thousands, New York City, spending money, eating and drinking at some of the best restaurants. And back when we reminisce when wine, really beautiful, amazing bottles of wine are, were cheaper then. I, I did a great job of extending my T and E budget by <laughs> reading about wine and learning about wine and learning that Joseph Phelps insignia wasn't the only wine they made. They made all these other cool <laughs> things. And, and I could tell my clients about these stories and then whether it be Bordeaux producers or Napa Cabernet producers or whatnot, and just, and not just buy the best and most expensive bottle on the list. And steakhouses all out around New York and fine dining restaurants. So that was how I got into wine. And I just became the guy in my community of friends and colleagues who just was the guy who knew about wine. And, and that was it. I did that for about six years before I was I started to ask myself, I have no idea how wine is made. You can't <laughs> read the book. Everyone's like the first book of winemaker or budding wine student. Bill, you know this if you're studying for your exam. You read like the, uh, the art or science of the science of wine by Jamie Good. Yep. Like, I read that book like three times. I have no idea what he's talking about. So, <laughs> wine for 15 years. so I basically, yeah, I took a sabbatical and ended up working on a vineyard in Italy for a year. Back in 2005, 2006, came back to the United States. Didn't think I'd be in the wine making business, but I, I couldn't find a job in the wine selling business in New York City at the time. Ended up in California. And with that was an extension of my internship, my year long, year and a half long stage of, of learning about vineyards and winemaking, working with a gentleman named Andy Smith at Dumont. And he was my bridge to Larkmeet because he was also the consulting winemaker at Larkmeet at the time. And at the end of that 06 harvest, he asked me to stay on full-time at Larkmeet as a cellar master and make the wines over there. Wow. So you went basically from being the Intern wine guy to, to, wine more to being yeah, the cellar master. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty big jump. Yeah. Cellar master you- to assistant winemaker, associate winemaker, and then winemaker in 2012. Yeah. So I had... When I first caught the wine bug, I, I did it. I was in the quartermaster sommelier's track. So I did those exams and I became the wine guy in my friend group. And I had the same thing. I was like, how is this made? So I went to Australia to work at Vintage, but I didn't make the leap to go just become a cellar master within a year and a half. That's What did your coworkers and family say when you decided to stand? It was, I had to convince my family that I, that they didn't know wine was a a pursuit. Business. Like a, <laughs> they didn't know it was a business of pursuit. So they were like, what are we doing? I've had a really great run. I love magazines to death. I still subscribe to tons of magazines. I'm a, I started a magazine through Masakan. Now I'm into Substacks. I have like 45 Substacks and 30 magazine subscriptions. So I'm still an avid consumer of weekly, daily, monthly media in its traditional forms. So I wasn't planning to make the leap. I didn't have no intention of being a winemaker. I just, I had a curiosity. I think the winemaker Andy Smith at the time, he we were slightly near each other in the same age group, so I had a bit more maturity. I had a curiosity. I spent time in Europe learning about other regions of the world other than just Russian River Valley Pinot at the time at Dumont. And I worked hard and I was tireless. And Harvest to me felt like I played college football and Harvest to me can't. You go and you do three <laughs> days and then for three weeks, and then all of a sudden you you start the regular season. So harvest wasn't anything different for me. So August and early September was like football training camp, and so just it, it was just all right. Turn it on, get up and go. 
I don't care if you're tired, if you're hurt, if you're hungover, get up and go do the best job possible. Don't make any mistakes or you're not going to make the team. And that's, and that's how my first foray into it. But I was at the end of the harvest. I remember exactly the day it was Halloween, October 31st. And at the end of the, near the end of the Dumal harvest, that was our last day of picking grapes back in 06. It was a long, cool year. And Andy was like, I want to hire you. And I was like, to do what? I was like, I don't want to make money. So he goes, don't worry about it. You work hard. You're curious. You're responsible. And Larkmead at the time had just opened its doors in 05, 06. And they needed responsible people there. And it was only three or four people. They wanted people with that can do a lot of stuff and feel com- confident that I'm going to open the doors and lock them at night. So that's responsible and hard worker and curious. Wow. So how did your time there evolve? You stayed there for over a decade. So you ended up working your way up, becoming the winemaker and yeah, tell us about it. So yeah, it was that So the early start of it was me putting on my, my, my kind of curiosity cap and tasting every day, tasting out of the cellar every day, understanding, writing notes. I taught myself the, the ideas of biodynamic errors and stuff by just tasting wine every day and writing notes and looking at temperature and, and looking at weather patterns and thinking about you know, the ebbs and flows of the gravitational poles. And so it was all just like working hard, asking questions and saying, why does it taste like this today? And it tastes like that tomorrow or it tastes like mm-hmm. this yesterday. That was part one. Part two was being able to have a couple of different roles at the winery because we were all like, jacks of all trades for lack of a better phrase. We were, I did a couple of days in the tasting room. I did a couple of days just helping out with other projects. And so just my own personal edification, I have this weird love of writing business plans, like creating an idea and then writing a business plan behind it. So I started writing a business plan for a wine brand because I had exposure to all facets of the business at the time and I needed to understand them. So I needed to record them and look at them from a statistical and a data and a math perspective. And I wrote a business plan two thousand and early 2009 after being at Larkney for two full years. And I sent it to all my buddies from business school. And I was like, does this business make sense? And they were like, no. <laughs> and it was for Cabernet-based wine. And it's just like a five on the five-year cash flow, a capital investment to make a world-class Napa Valley Cabernet that at the time would have cost 50 or 75 or maybe $100. This was 2009. But the capital investment's huge. So... I flipped the model to white wine, like to just like a Sauvignon Blanc or a white-based wine, and the model worked. And I was like, you didn't need the capital investment that you need for starting a Cabernet brand. It's not, as long as you made a good wine, you bottled it, people enjoyed it, you sold it, you can hopefully have enough money to make more the next year. And that's how Masakan started. It started with a, also this kind of weird feeling that the Napa Valley is in this very, was, is very Mediterranean in its climate, mm-hmm. not Mediterranean in its consumption of food. And it's eating mm. patterns. The food is somewhat Mediterranean, like beer, but it's, we have the weather, but we don't have the culture of eating like we're in the Mediterranean and, or drinking. Our wine styles aren't Mediterranean in style, even though yeah. the, the weather is Mediterranean mm-hmm. in style. So I found that very odd after spending a year living, living the white lotus lifestyle in Sicily for a year. I, I found that odd. And I thought that creating a white wine brand like Masakan that kind of leaned into the Mediterranean meant more to me in the community of my friends and colleagues and peers, but it wasn't yet, you know, what the, what I think Napa Valley or even Sonoma County was used to. We're used to just having a lot of sunshine in a glass and make these beautifully delicious, bold red and white wines. And that wasn't what I was drinking when I spent a year living in a very similar climate. So I had this, I had a business plan and I had a creative idea, which was very pragmatic, which is Mediterranean, drink Mediterranean white wines in a Mediterranean climate. And I pulled them together and that was 09. 
while I was still climbing the ladder at Larkmead, I started that on the side with 400 cases in 09. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be bottling close to 8,000 cases in Masakan. Wow. Um, yeah. And then you left to work on Masakan full time. Was it just last year or was it how long ago was that? Yeah. So 2021, summer 2021. So it's two vintages now, which has been great. And it's it's been fun. It's you know, sold out most of the year, two or three months of the year, four months of the year. So I don't have enough wine to fulfill my 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 demand. So it was really good for me to be able to get outside of myself and I kept myself tethered to Napa Valley because of a day job. And now I have this opportunity to spend more time in Sonoma County sourcing grapes. I have more time to go a little afield and, and out to Lodi. There's an amazing old Italian farmers out there who have grown grapes for the Gallo family for the last 50 years. And they have some funky varieties like Zanfalangina and Greco and all these white grape varieties from the Mediterranean, from Italy that I'm expanding my portfolio with. And the farming is good and they're organic and they're inexpensive compared to the luxury lifestyle of Napa and Sonoma. So it made a lot of sense for me to, to do that. And being a, someone who doesn't like to drive, it's if I go out and do my loops into these vineyards, it's five hours to get there and back. And I couldn't have a day job and do that. I just, I have too much Catholic mm-hmm. guilt to like say on a Wednesday leave <laughs> and I'll see you at one o'clock. And this, and this doesn't make that just doesn't work for me as a professional. I need to cut the ties to anything here in Napa Valley so I can think about Masakan's future potential. When you first branched off and started to present this idea of a white-only winery to folks adjacent to you in the industry, did you get a weird eye? Did you have to win people over? What was the perception back then? I think back then, the because it all came out of John Bonet summed it all up in his book, New California in 2011 or so, whatever that was. But there was just, there's a lot of stuff that was still, there's a bell curve, right? In the middle of that bell curve is all the Napa Valley Cabernet and Merlot and Chardonnay production. And then there's the fringes. And then the fringes were either old vines or new vines. Most of it was old stuff that had been in the community. I remember doing a report on 120 plus years of Larkmead's history. And they had 20, at the time, they had 28 grape varieties planted on the property over the course of 120 years. Now, when I left, they they were focused on seven, right? And then, then we did some trials for climate change, added on six or seven new grape varieties on top of that for climate change purposes. But uh, so there was Napa, Sonoma and California wine country was very diverse, it started with the diversity of the population that, that kind of settled here in the 1800s, the Germans, the French, the Italians, and the Spanish. And then it then kind of prohibition wiped all that out. And then we started again post-prohibition, and then it finally got very narrow. I think people just, people from a marketing business, brand perspective, there's a lot of quiet competition and everyone's competing against each other. And I don't compete against any of them with Masakan. It's a cute little thing. It's a cute little thing that's become <laughs> incredibly powerful and it's gotten recognition. And it's, yeah, the stuff that Masakan has achieved. I know a lot of wineries in Napa Valley would love to have achieved the success of being poured by the glass for 10 straight years, a place like the French Laundry and Chez Panisse and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm very fortunate I blah, blah, blah it, but it's, uh, the, it's yeah, more yeah, going yeah. towards yeah. the, it's more going towards like what got to meet people where they are. The French Laundry and Chez Panisse and fine dining restaurants are. They're about either rustic, light, bright, fresh fare, or they're about technique and style and design. And just because you make a wine and you're a neighbor, doesn't mean it belongs in that right. restaurant. Yeah. It's a two-way street when it comes to pairing things, whether it be pairing a, day, a dish at home with your wine or at a restaurant. It's a two-way street. And you have to understand their business model before you think that your business model just fits. And I think that's a big problem here in wine country. Just because we make it doesn't mean it's 
it, yeah, I don't. Be. I don't know. I don't know what they pair insignia with at the French Laundry, but I imagine that it dominates whatever they're putting on the table. So I think that kind of makes sense of meeting them where they're at. Um, no, no offense, insignia. I love that wine, but using it as a as the uh, representation of Napa Valley Cabernet, it's one of the oldest standing wines. Starting insignia mm-hmm. starting you know seventy two, seventy three. So it's, it's a legend. It's an icon. No, yeah, no, that, what, that's a really I, smart approach. I, I went. I went. Go ahead. <laughs> now Brady you go I'll tack on I just wanted to pivot to the like your kind of design aesthetic around Masakin and how that was maybe influenced by your time in, in magazine publishing these kinds of things looks like it is when, yeah when I first started with a little bit of cash in the bank to make something happen I basically took a mashup when you're a wine geek you I can see Brady behind you you got a couple of empty bottles up over your shoulder when you're a wine geek you save a lot of your you save a lot of your bottles like that your that your favorite wines that you've had mine were mine tend to be somewhat aesthetically interesting as well on top of my, my flavor taste profile that i appreciated so i i started looking at the bottles that i loved over time and i was like as i was thinking about the monster Com brand I was like, what do i want it to look like so i made a mashup of a lot of my favorite wines of italy and i had i came from sicily and also pisciato had these beautiful labels with all this kind of old handwriting on it and these vintage dates and these really large formats palo bea had this beautiful blue for santa chiara was one of my my favorite quote-unquote orange wines the whole concept of nebbiolo with the bar on top where you see conterno or gaia so my original designs for masacom was literally just a mash of the ball that i remember taking the capsule off of uh, Eve Gangloff Condrieu. And giving it to the capsule provider in Napa Valley to match that color for my capsule. So I basically mm. stole from all my heroes and made my own version of Matsukan's label. And it was cheap and easy. And we just laid it out. It was great. Ten years into Matsukan, I said, it's time to officially design a label and design a concept. And, and when I went into that process, it was very dominated by understanding art and design and understanding what people, how people engage. So I said, I wanted to own a color. I said, centering isn't a design technique. Anyone can, I can do that on my word. I said, I want to feel like I feel when I touch and grab and hold an Aesop product that you may pick up in a restaurant or hotel bathroom. And I want to be able to identify it, feel good that they, these guys have the same aesthetic and then come to it. And it's intimate, right? You put, not only do you put the stuff on your face, you have to actually touch it to read it. You have to look at it. That's the thing with a wine bottle. You actually have to hold it to experience it, to understand it, to see what you're pouring. You look at the vintage, you can examine it. It's like in your hand, it becomes an intimate moment. So we identified the color blue. Blue is probably the most widely globally loved color. 60 something percent of people say color blue is their favorite color. I wanted the, I wanted Masakam blue to be something more Mediterranean. So we went to, we went to the south of Monte Masico is in the south of Italy, just north of Naples. So you have Pompeii there, you have just the south of Naples and that whole Mediterranean vibe is a thing called Pompeian blue, which is this kind of weather-worn blue that comes from Egyptian blue, which was the first synthetic that came from ultramarine, which came from Afghanistan. Mm. And so you, you get this nice powder blue, weather-worn color blue of the Mediterranean. So that was our color. And we pulled that color off a 1,600-year-old fresco. And then with the composition, Masakan, Masakan's shitty on Instagram, right? Because it's like Aesop. If it's in the distance of the background, you can identify it through color and composition, but you can't identify which one it is because it's super, everything is super small and intimate. But we set it up to make it look like a, a page of a book or a handwritten letter. So it was like a line left. And that goes that ties back to my publishing career. So it's on a line mm-hmm. left and it's like 
title, chapter, verse, page number. It's a vintage. And then you turn the bottom. It's all handwritten in Italian, my, my handwriting. Turn the page over and it reads, it translates to English. And so it was very thoughtful. Like everything we did was incredibly thought out because I, and it ended up happening that I said, if I do something, I want to be able to tell a story. And I did. I just told you the whole story about how creation, <laughs> the creation story of my label. And my label is in the Harvard Library of Pigment and it's uh, under Masakan Blue. And it's, uh, it's being so recorded, cool. recorded in the library because their pigment library records captures everything they can capture over time with regards to color, whether they have crayons from the sixties or they have dust from, uh, from chalk in the 1800s so that they can actually chemically understand it. So when someone comes to say a hundred years from now, Hey, I want to represent Masakan blue on my wine label, go to the Harvard library. They'll have the Masakan blue recorded and they'll be able to tell you what the you know, composition is. If you want to reuse that color, it's not trademark or anything like that. Wow. That's an incredible story. And I will say the bottles are gorgeous. So yeah. you succeeded there. And I like the idea of having to bring it closer and have more of that intimate experience. How did you, taking like a one step back, how did you develop the name Masakan? We haven't asked yet. I just realized. Even then it was hard. Today it's even harder to come up with a name for anything. I was just, I tend to keep lists of things. And then now that we have phones, it's so much easier. But I was trying to, just writing a list of different way, things I would call brand. And I made I, my biggest regret, my biggest mistake in life is is calling it Moscow. And, and the reason for that is when I was growing up in wine in New York City as a wine consumer, drinker, I didn't speak French, I didn't speak Italian at the time. And it was really hard for me to pronounce certain things on the wine labels. And I think wine, as intimidating as it is, a lot of it has to do with the language barrier and being able to pronounce and understand. And then on top of that, you add geography to a French wine label. And now you're really screwing with Americans, right? Americans don't know where the <laughs> hell Idaho is, let alone. So I just, I did the worst thing possible. I, I, I created a name that you probably couldn't pronounce and didn't know what it meant. Easy enough. <laughs> Not to say that Cameron Diaz, anyone knows what Aveline means, right? It's just an easy name and it sounds like a Roxy music song and all this other stuff, but, uh, but it's, it's easy and it's like, it flows and it feels good. But Masakan is a Monte Masico. Monte Masico is where my great grandparents were born in southern Italy, just north of Naples. So it's the Masakan Hills. And I named my first wine after their granddaughter, my mother, Anya. Oh, and that wow. was because my mother never drank white wine. She was a red wine drinker. So it was like a, a story behind it. And, uh, and I needed a fanciful name because my, uh, it wasn't a 100% grape variety wine. It was a blend. It was Tokai, Fialano, Ribola, Jala, Chardonnay at the time, and still is to this day. And so I started just using all these fanciful names for my wines. Gemina is named after ancient Roman grape, Amanea Gemina, which is a tied to Greco, and that's a Greco-based wine. Stephanie Blanc is Stephanie Blanc. Hyde is Hyde Chardonnay, Hyde Vineyard Chardonnay. So that's my kind of like homage to not only the classicism of single vineyard designations, but it's also, it's just a, it's a cool name. And and I make some other I'm making some other blends for a, a national Whole Foods project that I call the Melia Bianco. I offered them the words Vino Bianco because I thought Vino and Bianco is even if you try really hard to speak another language, I think you can translate Vino Bianco. If you don't, <laughs> until is that white wine? They but they loved Melia Bianco, which is named after my great grandparents who were from the Muscat Hills, and that was yeah. And so I have all these kind of fanciful names for me. What the one throughput is, you may not pronounce the name, you may not understand the grape variety, but if you, through word of mouth or through 
critical acclaim or through any other reason, through this suggestion at a restaurant or a retail shop, when you taste a bottle of Masakan, I want you to understand what the goal is for it, which is the simple, delicious freshness of a light, bright, white Mediterranean wine. And I want you to feel that you can trust that. So whether you're buying Anya, Jamina, or Amelia Bianca at Whole Foods, or Savion Blanc at a restaurant, or buy the glass somewhere, I want you to be able to say, I trust Masakan is going to give me this Mediterranean white wine sensibility over and over and over again. And there's going to be, there may be some variances in the flavor profiles and the great varieties. And I don't know what the fuck they are, but I trust <laughs> And this wine is delicious. And that's my goal in life. And that's my, what I think about every day when I wake up, but I'm probably the only person that thinks about that every day when they wake up. Cause I'm the only person who thinks about Masakan every day when I wake up. How much when you first started in terms of how you messaged and did branding around these releases focused on educating people about the grape varieties that you were using, or is it always more about, and does it continue to be more about the concept of making the style you just described? Or I'm not a person, I grew up in New York City, so I don't have this elevated palate. I don't have this nose mm-hmm. and smell gooseberry from a mile away. I, know, I don't even know what a gooseberry is, even 40 <laughs> plus years later. So I always avoided the concept of tasting notes. And it was for me, it's again, wine is so intimidating And it's so the power of persuasion. I can tell you what you're smelling. I can tell you, Brady, what your microphone dust jacket smells like right now. Because I've experienced it, right, (laughs) in some capacity. And it's musty and it smells the last thing you ate because your food gets stuck in your mustache like mine. And you're close to it. And it smells like Cool Ranch Doritos. But so that's how I think about wine, right? I think about it as I've always tried to avoid my early stages of Matsukan's branding and concept was I tried to be a wine bro. And like my wife called me out on this. You talk to your customers like they're your wine bros, right? That's why 65% of your customers are men and they're your age. They're your constituents, right? Talk, you're not talking to a broader audience. You're not talking to, you don't know what women want and where they want it and how they want it from a consumer packaged good perspective. So I had to think about that a lot. And, and I remember when I relaunched my website a couple of years ago, I used to have case production and alcohol and like all these technical data. Mm. Like who the fuck cares? Really <laughs> cares. So now what I did was I took all the reviews of the Masakan wines from Wine Enthusiast and Wine Spectator, which has reviewed my wines for a bunch of years now. I take each wine's review and I take all the thing and I just create word clouds. And so if you go to my website and you look at Masakan Ani, it says smells like, tastes like. So you immediately know that this wine smells like X and tastes like Y, as opposed to me trying to be fancifully crafting a sentence that makes you so desirous of my wine that you have to press buy now. Like, I'm not into that. So you'll see, you'll probably see a lot more like AI generated content coming out of Masakan that throws and that flows into the vibe that I'm trying to accomplish by aggregating content in a more meaningful way because I'm a one man show. Right. So I'm not like, I don't have a team. I have, I'm writing a cookbook right now. I have a small team of people that I've hired to do that. And when I was writing the news magazine, I had been working with a small team of people who I hired as consultants and freelancers to help me do that. Similarly, when I wrote the lifestyle magazine for the year, I had a small team of people that I freelanced, but I'm, I'm basically spending most of my time on editorial endeavors and chat GPT is just 
it's been a godsend for <laughs> <laughs> the last six months. I'm so happy you brought that up. The podcast that's going to air right before you, we talked to a guy extensively about AI, and I'm sure everybody's like, what does this have to do with wine? Here you go. Yeah. Um, it's, let me just say this, and you can steal this for your the previous podcast. ChatGPT is, for someone who comes from the publishing industry, ChatGPT and AI helps you get over writer's block. Anyone can take existing words and flush them out and make them, make them perfect and, and relevant to you. But a lot of people have a hard time writing the first word. So if you can get a story, like I, I went into chat, I was joking around, like I've had so many fun, different little chat GPT things with a bunch of friends. And one of them was like, tell a story about a Mediterranean white wine made by a guy named Dan in Napa Valley. And it mm-hmm. was a whole story. One of my friends said, write a rap song about Masakan. And, and it's just like the shit that comes out of it is amazing. <laughs> it's, and it's all, and we're only scratching the surface. Like, wait to check. GPT-4 comes out when oh, yeah. 2022 is just, I feel like the content generation in 2022 is yeah. more interesting and powerful than it was prior to that. Yeah, I think their inputs were like 4,000 or something, and now it's like 60,000 for the next yeah. version. So it's going to be. Yeah. But so I do have, we do have some technology type things and NFT conversation towards the end here. But before we shift completely, I want to talk about the grapes. So you started out with Friulano, you got Tokai Friulano. I know they have to take off the name now, the Tokai part. And then Ribola Jala, Chardonnay. What else? Are you, so you're working with some Greco, some Falangina. What else now? Yeah. Or why so those yeah, groups? The, the brand started because I, back in the day, uh, part of the thing you do every year, and I just submitted it as the California Grape Crush Report. It's like how many grapes you crush, and what varieties you crush, where you crush them, so that the your state of California can keep a tally. And... I was, you get this report every year and you flip through it and it's like, where the hell is that grape being grown? Oh my God, there's 10 tons of that in Napa? Where is that? So then you start doing your searches and I, so I found these things. But while I was living in Italy, I traveled a bunch and I fell in love with Tokai Fia because I just found it to be such a, an incredible food pairing wine. It had the, it had the sensibility to go from, from Tokai and the region of Friuli is an hour and change north of Venice. So the variety itself had the flexibility of being consumed with fish and the Adriatic Sea down there. And then it also had anything up into the mountains where some of the Italians and, and Northern Italians are eating goulash, beef stew. So you can pair this thing from a fish dish to a beef stew. And I found that to be incredibly flexible and engaging and the flavor profiles I enjoyed. So that was always going to be the core of my my, my brand. Ribola was very unique and rare. Chardonnay was common. Sauvignon Blanc was common. But over time, I was... I was able to just have access to other things and people were, and I became the guy who was doing the weird Italian grape varieties alongside like people like Steve Mathiasen and people, everyone was doing a bunch of stuff, but then, but when it came down to the focus, so I think in 2021, I had, I made 33% of all the Tokai and Ribola planted in California as a winery, as a winemaker. And I just started to realize that I, it's going to be a bear to continue to grow this stuff, plant this stuff, but there's stuff that might be still out there. Again, like I mentioned, like these old, there's old farmers out in Lodi who put and work with the gallows forever. And so just through like friendships and colleagues and word of mouth, I started like, expanding. So now I'm working with 11 different vineyards, 11 different grape varieties. I tend to try to, within a vineyard, I did, for example, in 2022, I made 24 harvests over through 11 vineyards. I tend to work with a farm and a farmer and I, 
try to do more than one thing with them because I want to min- minimize my drive time. I'd rather, I don't want to go drive an hour to a Rebola vineyard than an hour to another vineyard and an hour. I want to see if over time, over 12, 13 years, I can build a relationship with someone so that they plant when they have an acre that come available, we plant the grape variety or we come out of a long-term plant. So over the 12 or 13 years, I've been doing that. I've been working with farmers to grow my relationship with them. And that's been happening at a very good pace. And it will continue to happen in our next three to five years, which I'm excited about. So yeah, so Tokai, Rebola, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Malvasia, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Bianco, El Cortez, Moscato. I think that's 11. That's close. So you like really cover with the like, Greco and the Falangina closer to that Campania side of your family, but then Cortese from up north. And Moscato yeah. is also grown everywhere and so yeah. is Malvasia depending. That's cool. It's almost like a snapshot of Italy in a glass there. And then I, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Billy, because my blends this year are actually moving in that direction. Whereas in the past, I used to blend Pinot Bianco and Greco together. So I have the north and the south come together in, in a glass. And uh, this year, it's actually going to be Greco and Falangina. So it's going to remain southern. Oh, um, cool. The Ani has always been Tokai Rebola Chardonnay, which is a very common kind of mixture cuvee. Cortese is going to be blended this year with, with Pinot Bianco. It's going to stay up in the north. Malvasia is, like you said, it can be, it's grown everywhere. It's grown in Sicily. It's grown in, in, in the north, mostly the north, and then also in some southern warm parts and central Italy. So I'm actually having a lot of fun and being more like focused Opposite to track in some instances, but also what goes what grows together goes together. So I'm super excited about the future potential opportunities of growing these little bottlings of Masakan. I'm doing six right now and growing their volumes. Awesome. I haven't had the privilege to have one yet, but I just got one of your NFTs recently. It enables me to have a couple. So I'm looking forward to that. But on that same note, can you? It looks like you've been pioneering the move for a white wine emoji. And then you also, <laughs> that was your second batch of NFTs that I participated in. You had another one. So tell us about the technology side and the quest for the white wine emoji. Yeah, I think, you know, Kendall Jackson with their, the dominance of the Vintners Reserve, Vintners Reserve Chardonnay, they posted up like, oh, we want the white wine emoji. And then like New Zealand got in on it and everything. They wrote these petitions. And Unicode controls emojis was like, it's not a red wine emoji. It's a wine glass emoji. It's devoid of (laughs) race, color, creed, taste, flavor, whatever. It's just a wine glass emoji. So we don't need a red and a white. And so Unicode just canceled it and said, no, no. They just kept saying no. And so I was like, I should create the white wine emoji. And I thought, do it as an NFT. And I started doing it as an NFT and I was like, I can't really do the white wine emoji as an NFT if I don't actually have a white wine emoji. And so I worked with a friend of a friend to do, design this like 30 second digital origin school, origin story of an NFT of a white emoji, which is two people having a text exchange and you can go see it. It's on my, it's on OpenSea. It's on, it's on my Instagram. And, but then I actually did the hard work, which delayed me like six months of figuring out how to code to create an app for the iPhone. So I coded, I coded an app. And I saw there's a Moscon app in the iPhone that allows you to download about 50 wine and cocktail emojis for your phone. They're called stickers and they'll go right into your iMessage, like across the bar above your keyboard. And like you hit the M and then it'll show you a Negroni, a dirty martini with olives, martini with a lemon, Moscow mules. We have white claw in there. And then we have orange wine, pink wine, rosé wine, like all the different things. So it's 50 different emojis. You can buy it for 99 cents. Nice. 
And it's, so the white wine emoji exists, but it exists as a sticker app. It's not part of the, the Unicode segment of that. And so NFTs became, NFTs were, became important to me. So I am my, my one true passion outside of like magazines and publishing is, is art. And 2017, 2018, there were two young women from NPR who were going to create a journalism on a blockchain through this program called Civic and or civil, excuse me. And uh, so my wife and I were going to invest in it. And, and at the time, we were like, well, how much do you want to give? $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 Ethereum. <laughs> I was like, so we were about to buy $10,000 worth of Ethereum, and they decided they weren't doing their program. So we did not buy $10,000 worth of Ethereum in 2018, which we did. <laughs> but, but I just followed, I've been following the blockchain and the concept of what the blockchain is. And I do feel that the blockchain is going to be 20, 30, 40 years from now, I think every a lot of personal personal public data and transparent data of contractual information and product will be on the blockchain. So I do think like in 2040, 2050, 2060, all every part in your Tesla will be, have been recorded on the blockchain so that when you buy your Tesla, you'll be able to see all the last nuts and bolts of the car and have it recorded with its metadata to understand it's all of its proof of existence and all of its information that you need to know where it's been manufacturers how to replace it, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's going to happen. Just CryptoKitties is a concept created NFTs because they were trying to figure out how to... Blockchain was created because of the housing crisis in 2008, 2009. And then CryptoKitties was how to create contracts on the blockchain and through housing, and they couldn't figure it out. And so then they ended up creating this fun animated game around cats. Cats were super cool memes on Reddit during 2016, 17, 18. And they created this how to breed cats game. And now there's 20 million crypto kitties bred in five years. And it was all done on the blockchain through non-fungible tokens. And it was just, it was meant to see if the technology worked and it became mm. a very viral game and the technology works. They proved it. So you can mm. actually, so they have an origin story from the first two kittens to 20 million. And I think wow. the blockchain is the recording of the origin story of the future. So anything that's done today, so next year, this year, right, now January, my goal is to plant a vineyard on the blockchain, meaning we'll get plant a vineyard in real life, but we're going to court everything that happens to that vineyard on the blockchain. So that when you, four years from now, when I bottle my first wine from that vineyard, that's the end of the recording. And then it gets sold to you and drunk consumed by you, it's then at that point, you can choose to can continue to record the data to like what you felt like it tastes like. And then you can connect that to your seller tracker or to your Vivino app and whatever. So you can say, okay, here's all the information that ever happened. Do you, does anyone really give a shit if it rained on January 12th, 2024 in the vineyard? No, but can we record it? Yes. Is it helpful for someone a hundred years from now to know all this data and have all this accessible information? What, what we what chemicals we used in the vineyards, what rootstocks, harvest dates, weather dates, all that stuff is just a recorded history. I work on, you can't manage what you can't measure. I feel like the wine industry has done a really poor job of measuring things, especially as we're moving into thing, into conversations around carbon capture and sequestration. And we're thinking about stuff like we're not, we haven't been measuring any of this stuff. We haven't been measuring fossil fuel use in vineyards on farm, off farm. Like we're starting to do that now. And instead of just putting it in a spreadsheet and then it gets lost somewhere because, you know, someone's job changes or some organization changes, moves over, you can start putting all this stuff on the blockchain. It's going to be super powerful. Anyway, it's my long story. Like it's just a recorded, it's the record of everything moving forward contractually and also from the origin story of stuff. 
And I think it's going to, 10 years from now, we're going to all ask ourselves, how did we live without a crypto wallet? Because it's not a, the crypto wallet isn't about having cryptocurrency. It's about having information that you can then access. It's a, I look at the crypto wallet as an easy pass to a bridge. You drive your car through it, it connects to it, and lets you on to the other side. My former employer, Time Magazine, is probably the greatest old OG moving into the, the modern technology. They have You can go to Time Magazine's website, time.com, and connect your wallet. As long as you own a timepiece, which is one of their NFTs, that they have this whole community of artists building these, you have free access to the paywall, through the paywall. Oh, wow. So it's your personalized way to get through the paywall by just hitting connect wallet and then accepting it. Two buttons. You don't have to remember a password. You don't have to remember anything. It's just, they go in, they look at your wallet, they see that you have a timepiece, you've paid your toll, you're in. You don't have a timepiece, your wallet doesn't connect. You can buy a timepiece right then and there, and then that's your subscription. So there's things like that. And I remember working at Time Magazine when Walter Isaacson, 1995, was talking about micropayments on the internet. This crypto wallets are going to be the micropayments of the internet, of Web 2. It's going to be the Web 3. It's going to be your means of moving around. And that anonymously, you won't need your name, email, password, or anything. You'll just have your, you'll have some money in Public this wallet key. to pay fees, but it'll be your way of moving around the internet, you know, basically on one click. And I think we're all going to be like, shit, how did we not live with this in 10 years? Because it's such a simple technology. I think there's just a bunch of bad actors, bad marketers who've made NFTs and the blockchain into something that is, is not what it was originally built for. Yeah. And they'll get weeded out every time. I have so many questions. Brady, do you have anything before? <laughs> I yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, you talked about, and we're talking about technology and NFTs and chat GPT and white wines in California, white wines only in Napa Valley. Who are your peers? Can, is there, who do you commiserate with about these things in California maybe, and or maybe just in Napa specifically? I think a lot of people have to listen to me bullshit all the time about this stuff. No, I don't really, I just, I wake do up you, and do things that get me excited. And yeah. other people wake up and get excited about whatever they get excited about. Do, I do, you, know Dave, do you know Dave McGee in a, at Monochrome? I met him he's, briefly in a tasting in Los Angeles. He, yes. It's like a, yes, I, I don't know like him, a, but I know a former of, like stealth fighter jet engineer at Stanford wow. who started making white wines in Paso, white wine only kind of producer. I just... It made me think of the projects or maybe he just one really one. likes white wine only producers. So. Yeah. No, but I think about it. I say this to everybody. No one likes to hear it, but when I kind of talk about their businesses, I'm like, tell me the one thing you do great. Cause that's the one thing you're going to be re remembered for. And if you talk about the great white wine makers of the world, you're going to go right to Burgundy and white Burgundy. And you're going to go to the Rabinos and the Dovisas and you're going to go to Rulos and the Koch. And you then can maybe on your way, West, you're going to stop in Sancerre and talk about Dagenau, and you're going to talk about Cota. And they do one thing they do really well. They make white wine. And you could, the, the same can be said for red wine. If you took, yes, I know DRC has one of the most expensive white wines in the world, but that's not going to go on their tombstone. DRC's tombstone is going to be the greatest producer of fine, of single plot Pinot Noir ever. And I, so there's, you think about Napa Valley Cabernet, yes, you're going to, you're going to be the Napoli Cabernet, like you're going to be the one thing. So for me, with Masakan, I'm fortunate to say Dan Petrowski makes Mediterranean white wines in Napa Valley in the state of California better than anyone else. And the most important. So my peers, when I think about who I compete against, the greatest, I compete against Kendall Jackson's Vintners Reserve as a, as a, 
of what you're going to drink tonight. I compete against Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio against what you're going to drink tonight. I don't compete against Staglin family or Lark Mead or whoever. I don't. Like that's not my, not my motivation because I want to provide some, I want to provide a different course. And so for me, it's just about, it's creating that vision and that vibe and that message. Now my goal is to, I don't, I never had the wine to worry about messaging in the next two to three years. I'm going to have a lot of wine and I'm not to worry about messaging. I'm not to worry about marketing. I have to worry about selling. I have to worry about who the consumers are and where they are. I'm doing all that. I've done it all in the background. I do a ton of advertising on Google. I do a ton of advertising. I've done Pinterest. I've done Google. I've done magazines, newspapers. <laughs> I just, I advertise, I collect data. I know who my customers are today. I need to look, I need to find who my $24.99 to $29.99 customer is tomorrow. Where are they? What are they drinking? Are they drinking Conundrum? Are they drinking Santa Margarita? Are they drinking Cloudy Bay, Sauvignon Blanc? Those are my customers of the future and people like them. So that's when I have wine to sell to them, that's my job in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. I live in a, my own world when it comes to Brady to answer your question. I don't commiserate with people. Everyone has their, it's everyone here does what's in front of them and, and they tend not tend to veer from their path. And I, I don't have hospitality. I don't have a desire to only be in restaurants and sell a desire to be shoulder to shoulder with the great Bordeaux wines of the world or the great Burgundy wines of the world. I have a desire to have more bottles of Mazzacan on more tables than I possibly can. That's all mm. I want to do. Yeah, that's awesome. This is something that I've not grappled with in a a really like deep way, but like why is Santa Margarita still able to get charged twenty five to thirty dollars a bottle when there's so much Pinot Grigio, like quality Pinot Grigio available these days? Boggles my well, mind. They've been around, they've been in America since nineteen sixty one. So right. they have a history here. That's one. And so with that history they have a network of distribution that is that has been built over fifty years, fifty plus right. years. And the beauty of Italy, and this is why I lean, that's why I lean into it in my life, not only in I'm half Italian on my mother's side, rather than France, is that you don't have to explain Italy. <laughs> you, and you also never met a single person who came back from Italy and had a bad trip. True. You know, you have to explain France, you have to explain French dining. So I used to joke all the time, like, you could... You come home on a Friday night, you boil water, open a jar of sauce, put, have a dry box of pasta, and it transports you right back to Tuscany or to Rome. You can't mm. do that with French food. Like, it'll oh, take no. you six days to yeah. recreate the sauce. And like <laughs> 10 know? pounds of butter. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's just Italy is easy. Anyone could fake speaking the language. Pino, yeah, use your hands. And it's simple. <laughs> and it's just, it's easy, simple, and delicious. And the minimalism of Italian food and wine culture, even though there's hundreds and hundreds of Italian wine grapes, the minimalism of what they mean to the food and wine culture and terroir there is something you can grasp. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think, you know, I think the Hollywood has done a great job. Not only do we have a lot of fun, like you have the Rat Packer and Frank Sinatra, and then Hollywood had a, did a great job of just making it, making the Italian wine, Italian lifestyle very very notor created a great notor what am I, what's the word i'm looking for notoriety for right. italy it just knows it's simple you well, don't feel don't... yeah i'm sorry you just don't feel intimidated going to an italian restaurant right yeah you go to a french restaurant you're intimidated agreed so well, yeah no but might be on top of that and it's even more intimidating <laughs> 
my beef isn't with Pinot Grigio. It's, I like their producers like Elena Volk or like German who like have these really quality wines. I'm just wondering why people keep going to, I know they've always done it. It's one of those legacy brands and they're going to keep, I used to work in advertising. So I'm, that's like a case study of strong brand, but it's just interesting to me. It's still able to capture that even and today. I don't, and I, my goal was not to, my goal is, I look at the world in two ways. And I, this is a really bad school mindset, but I look at bell curves and pie charts. Pinot Grigio owns this much of the pie. What's my slice of that pie? Am I going to grow the pie or am I going to steal some of their share? So if there's 650,000 cases a year and I want to be 65,000 cases, I either have to, I'm not going to steal 10% of their market share. Right. I have to grow mm-hmm. it a little bit and steal 5% of their market share. How mm-hmm. do I do that? And then I don't want to be them. I want to be the California version of them that people aspire to. And it has a little bit more of a kind of a premium price product. And they can say, yeah. oh, this is the California version. Boom. And, it's, and then the bell curve is the same thing as you mentioned, Elena Valk and, and German. Here's Santa Margarita here. But then those guys' production is here. And it's more fine, refined production, sure. smaller production, higher price point. So it's just where do you fit in these two in, the, in these two examples, in the pie and then also in the bell curve. And Santa Margarita just did a great job eating up the entire middle, right? Yeah. And making it easy. And this brands into that in, in every facet of the industry. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I just would pay 5 to $10 less. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but anyway, back to your vineyard. One, I want to know where is where are you planting? And two, I've heard... I read a little bit about you having some efforts in the metaverse. Are you going to try to plant a vineyard in the metaverse as well? The metaverse is, so the in real life planting is, I'm in talks to, in, in Napa, in a small part of Napa, but also in Carneros. So we're working through that now. We won't need to do that until June. And then it's a long project. It's a long, it's like a three or four year progression. Yeah. The metaverse for me is, I'm trying to create a place where we can have this conversation I believe in virtual tastings, right? Like really we have to, the NFT offers you a virtual tasting. We can experience it. You're drinking a glass of water. Now I'm drinking a coffee. We can be drinking a glass of wine and still having this virtual conversation. So I don't have the means to, and the technology to build my own Zoom. But what the blockchain has created and what is on top of the blockchain are these metaverses, these worlds that are created that are software based. And so I could create a little... I'm not even going to call it a metaverse. I'm just going to call it Barmasica. Let's meet and have a, let's meet at Barmasica. I'll give you, I'll send you a link. I'll tell you, these are the two things you have to do to sign in and get an avatar. And then you, and then here's the location and you boom, you land in Barmasica. And then you and you, Brady and I are sitting there in a bar that looks like this timeless classic Italian bar having this conversation, just like we are right now. Instead, now I'm just looking at Brady's microphone and your headset and, I'm trying to decipher what the bottles of wine are on the back of over Brady's right shoulder. But now we'll just be doing that in, in, in a space and it will exist in quote unquote, whatever we want to call this future metaverse. Right now, there's, I'm not doing it because there's no one there. And yeah. I want, I'm not trying to bring customers off the street right now. I want to bring these engagements. I'm going to be doing with that NFT, Cuvée Collective Projects, I'm doing 90 virtual tastings. Like, hmm. So I'm wow. doing 90 Google Meets or 90 Zooms. That's a lot. I have three of them scheduled, but I have to do yeah. 87 more this year. <laughs> so do I always have to, we're just like, we're just pumping it through Zoom. We're pumping it through Google Meet. I use Google Meet because it links it to my calendar. And, but if I can give you a link that brings you to a place, it's called Bar Masakan. 
I need to get this idea of the metaverse out of everyone's heads. Yeah. Because well, just, I, Zoom, Zoom and Google Meet are some sort of, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put us in an environment, an experiential yeah. environment that, that instead of just doing Zoom and Google Meet. Well, I noticed <laughs> on my NFT, we could meet in Sandbox. And so I, I own a couple pieces of land around Sandbox. My, I was mainly trying to get to where are you going to build and I'll just be your neighbor. And then yes. We can. <laughs> yeah. I started thinking about this before investing tons of money. I started thinking about, I want to, it's not just the 90 people that's the both those NFTs. I have 5,000 other customers, right? And as we know, the data is like 16% of all US people have crypto wallets at this moment. I'm going to spend this year looking at what are the easiest existing metaverses, platforms that I could build into that is co- the easiest consumer engagement. How do I get mm-hmm. a customer from point A to point into Barmasacon in three steps, as opposed to that doesn't ha- that's not happening on Sandbox. Oh, no. I'm going to go and spend <laughs> all this money buying land in Sandbox to be next to Snoop or Adida or somebody. And I'm like, and no one's fucking there now. So it's, like, it's not like anyone's there and not like anyone's spending money there. So I want to create my own Barmasacon I don't care where it exists. It might be voxels. It might be spatial. It might be African life or whatever. I just need to find out what's going to be from point from click to sitting in bar Masakan, the easiest non-intrusive step to someone who doesn't have a crypto wallet. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that's what I need to figure out before I push forward. I have bar Masakan design, but it's all laid out. I have all the art, the CAD files, everything. I have the actual, and I built it to be timeless, to be this nice, a, a old school Italian bar you'd find in Rome or in Milan or hopefully someplace in New York or like a Bar Pisolino in New York or Bar Termini in London has all the vibe of those taking Italy and bringing it somewhere else. So I have that done. I just need to find the next space to, I just need to find a space to do it. I need to hear. I just, people aren't ready for it. I don't want to push something that doesn't make sense. Like, Agreed. You know. Yeah. I have land, but I still am not quite sure how, I still don't know how the whole thing works. I just bought land just in case for the yeah. long run. Oh, it's a smart, but, uh, smart move. But uh, cool. So speaking of other cool things, in in the article I read, basically it just said you like to hang out with people doing cool shit. So who's doing cool stuff? What other partnerships are you doing? That article mentioned like gin and coffee, and you're doing a lot of stuff outside of just only wine. What else yeah. is there? I wish I wish I had more time and energy and effort and to meet more cool people. But I think everything in life is you want to be excited about what you do. You want to wake up pumped and ready to get going as soon as you get out of bed. And I am, and I feel that way, and I am fortunate. Like, Working with the chef who's writing my cookbook and the writer who's right, James Beard, award-winning writer and a Michelin star chef on top. She was on Top Chef and like working with people who are really cool and writing this timeless content. Like I could spend five grand a month on a social media manager and influencer to design my Masakon website, Instagram, and it would look like a bunch of bottle shots like everyone else's with Instagram. And seeing people cheersing and here's like a charcuterie plate. That means nothing to me, right? I am going to spend mm-hmm. a year writing a cookbook and I have timeless content forever. That recipe doesn't go old. Cookbooks stay on your shelf for as long as you know you have them. And it's about working with people who think of their business in a different way. So she literally just, like, I knew Sarah for years, and she literally was videotaping herself and posting on, on, on Instagram and on TikTok and going viral and had tons of followers and all this shit. And I was like, hey, we could work together. I want to do that for Masakon. What do we want to do? And then I came up with the idea of writing the cookbook. So that's one thing. The other thing is I have to leave in a few minutes because I'm going over to Healdsburg. A buddy of mine who's a winemaker, Sam Bilbro at Idlewild, he did the first Masakon collab project. What that is, what that was, was he, I asked him as a winemaker to pretend he's like a rock band and he's covering my 
you're covering a masakan song. So make a masakan, make a wine as if you're making a masakan wine, but you're actually Idlewell. Mm. And if you've covered my band, my song in a concert, and so now I'm doing six of them this year. I have one that just landed in, in, in the port of Oakland from Australia. I'm making one in Oregon with Ken Paula. I'm, making, I'm in Santa Barbara County next week on Wednesday to go check in on my wine I'm making down there. I'm making one here in Napa. So in the fall, in, in September of this year, I'm going to release Masakam B-Sides. And there's going to be six winemakers making a Masakam wine, their interpretation of a Masakam wine. And they were all like small production, 150 cases. And it's like, I obviously, I, and there's some rules. It has to be a white wine because Masakan's a white wine winery. And I just give them a blank check. I'm like, do it and just have fun. Make your version of a Masakan wine. You have to know me. You have to know Masakan. You, you have to know that I'm not going to do it to a random person who I've never met before, winemaker I've never met before, just because they're cool or something. But so every year I will work with someone else to make a, to help let them have some fun and make a version of a Masakan wine. Little things like that. It's been fun. I got a lot more. Like literally just last night on Instagram, a wine writer in New York posted, why don't we have, why isn't there a Masakam blue nail polish for Dan's, you know, when someone's holding the Masakam bottle up and taking a picture of it to match the color of his label. So like, like little things like that, like it sounds goofy. And I got 150 DMs saying they would buy it. Do that. Buy it. So I'm like, is that a possibility? I have, are we releasing a Masakam perfume with my wife? She's a perfumer. We have, she has body wash. We have the body sprays. That's all this kind of Mediterranean kind of blossomy citrusy aromas the perfume is more about like tobacco and juniper if you're musty and tobacco is if you were in a bar in italy or at night and people are outside smoking and drinking bitter paris and sodas and maybe some gin martinis and stuff like that go think eight and a half think kind of fellini era black and white think rat pack so we're doing all that stuff and i'm just having fun and trying to do like trying to take Dan Petrosky out of Masakana and make Masakana just a place you want to associate with. Eventually I might be a travel tourist destination or organization. My website looks like it's a freaking travel website. Let you me know, know like when you get the Masakana blue pop filter, something to yeah. replace my Dorito smelling one. And it's just all those things. Am I, do I want to do cool shit with Supreme and other places like that? Of course I do. That's, I love that stuff. I invest in that stuff as a collector. But it's not my vibe, and but maybe it needs to be. Maybe that's the new audiences, and maybe the NFT mm-hmm. space is the new audiences for me. Maybe Bar Masaka as an Italian bar needs to be some sort of more Mediterranean vibe. I don't know. We'll see. Awesome. We'll see. That's also cool. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thanks but, so yeah, much, Dan, for sharing your. One of the last one was I worked with a DJ from Brooklyn mm-hmm. to create like a whole Spotify playlist for Masaka, which I'll release. And, and, and oh, wow. That. Yeah. Oh, so nice. there's all these different vibes for these Mediterranean European vibes. Just little things like that. I think the best RIP, I think the best group that did what I thought was the coolest kind of essential universe creation around their brand was the house people, H-A-U-S, the kind of aperitif brand that came out hot and heavy during the pandemic. That's right. I think where they misinterpreted their product is depletions and consumption. Mm. People fail to remember that spirits aren't depleted on a you open a bottle of wine it's gone in 24 hours you open a spirit or a vermouth and i know this because i make vermouth it takes one dry white vermouth bottling is 24 martinis if you like a classic martini (laughs) you don't drink 24 Mm -hmm. martinis in a night right best (laughs) bars don't pour 24 martinis in a night so you have to understand you can have a great vibe and a great lifestyle but you have to have the product that actually finances it and wine white wine at low alcohol light bright fresh wines disappear 
like you just sure. as you open them and you're sitting down with your loved ones, family, friends, and you're opening a second mm-hmm. bottle real quick. So you got to remember that at the end of the day, it's got to fill many bottles of wine and do all this cool shit. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah, fun. That's awesome. Thanks a lot, Dan. I'll let you go here. I think you really, this is a good way to start the year because someone who looks ahead to the future so much in so many different areas of their life, whether it's technology or wine and stuff is, I think, a, a cool way to start the new year. So definitely appreciate your insights. And probably next time you come and join us, my room will be blue. These like your font all over the walls and stuff. Yeah, thanks a lot. We'll, we'll stay in touch and appreciate you sharing with our audience. I appreciate you guys too. Keep up the great work and Billy, good luck with the test next week. And yeah, Brady, we'll work on getting you up and some, some blue tints up there. <laughs> some blue. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dan. Awesome. Thank Thanks you. See you guys. Ciao. Awesome. That that was our interview with Dan. I hope you guys found it as interesting as I did. Go check out Masakan, drink some of their wines, and also, more importantly, even go out and check out the Vint Marketplace website, sign up, make sure you're in the loop, and we will be back with another episode of the Vint Podcast next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.